Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 9. In a moment, we'll be looking together at verse 18. Most of you probably know that I am a creature of routines. I like structure. I like consistency. I like my routines. One of my routines is that on Thursday afternoons, I take a walk around the church property. Usually by Thursday afternoon, I'm nearly finished with my sermon, and so I like to walk for a little while to pray, clear my head, and just think and meditate over the sermon that I will be preaching in a few days. And I try to get out for that walk, regardless if it's nice out or if it's cold or if it's rainy, because it's my routine, so I just do it. Well, two Thursdays ago, I'm out on my midday walk around the church, and as I'm walking down the church driveway that leads down to Pettis, I notice up in front of me on the church driveway a large glass bottle. Now, I think to myself, that's not good. Somebody could drive over that, break the the glass, potentially puncture a tire. Now, some people might just keep walking right on by that glass bottle, but not a nice guy like me. So I go and congratulating myself on being such a conscientious person, I, I go and I pick up that big empty glass bottle. But it's only once that bottle is in my hands that I notice what is written in very large letters on the label of that bottle, vodka. So now I'm just the friendly local pastor of a Baptist church taking an afternoon walk on the back of our property cradling an empty vodka bottle in my hands. Just a normal Thursday at West Camden Baptist Church. I've never felt quite so guilty for something that I did not do as I'm trying to walk quickly back to the dumpster. I just know that some church member is going to drive up behind me while I'm trying to get there. I'm thinking to myself, Doug Lasted is the pastor here for 40 years. I'm going to get kicked out after five months. While I'm on my way back, I have to walk by a landscaping crew that is doing some tree trimming around the building. They saw me come out of the church building a few minutes earlier, so they know that I work here. And now I'm coming back with a vodka bottle, an empty bottle, and they are staring at me, and it feels to me like they're kind of smirking as they look at me. So I smile, and I wave, and I say to them, hi, I'm Tim Anderson. (laughs) That's what I should have done. Instead, I try to walk over to the dumpster and throw the bottle away, looking as innocent as I possibly can. Just a friendly pastor who definitely does not go out on afternoon vodka breaks. It's a scary thing to be in a seemingly morally compromised position. Now, it's unfortunate when you are innocent of any kind of wrongdoing and things just look bad. But it's a whole other story when you are in a compromised position as a result of your own moral failure. And today we arrive at a sad scene in the Genesis narrative, a scene in which we find the righteous man Noah succumbs to moral failure. And that moral failure places Noah in a compromised position which leads in turn to further sin that will have generational consequences. It's a sad passage. It's moreover a strange passage if we're being totally honest. But I think it is also a passage with intensely practical lessons for all of us. And so as we work our way through this text this morning and the subsequent genealogy that follows, I'd like to structure our time together around 
three practical truths that I think that this text teaches to us. So here's the first. The pursuit of godliness is a lifelong endeavor. Read with me beginning in verse 18 of chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, before we make a comment on this latest development in the life of Noah, I'd like to briefly recall with you what we have learned thus far about Noah's character in the book of Genesis. Genesis 6 describes Noah as a righteous man, someone who was blameless in his generation, a man who walked with God. And then when God warns of a flood and the need to build an ark and then to enter into that ark, we read again and again that Noah did all that God commanded him. And then when Noah finally emerges from the ark after God's deliverance, Noah immediately offers a sacrifice of worship to God. So the the result of that character summary is that our understanding of Noah up to this point in the narrative is that Noah is a godly man a profoundly righteous man living in the midst of an ungodly time in human history. This is also a man of mature age and experience. He's more than 600 years old at this point in time, more than half of a millennium under his belt. And in this long life, Noah has consistently demonstrated godly character and obedient faith. And so it is demoralizing to open our text today and to find Noah in a compromised position that is the direct consequence of his own moral failure. Noah, in the aftermath of the flood, became a man of the soil. He became a gardener, and he plants a vineyard. And he enjoys the wine from this vineyard, but he enjoys it to such an excess that he becomes drunk. And not just drunk, but Noah is so absolutely inebriated that he is lying now, passed out in his tent incapacitated to the extent that Noah is now in the shameful condition of lying naked and exposed without apparently a care in the world for the impropriety of this whole situation. So what should we make of this development in Noah's story? What, what should we think about what's going on here? I think we need to be aware that a good beginning is no guarantee of a good end. There is no resting on our laurels in the Christian life. The moment that we feel that we have conquered sin in our lives and that we begin to relax our defenses is the moment that we are most susceptible, most vulnerable to attack. It's kind of like when people get stuck in in a dieting cycle. You start out on a diet, you do well for a little while, you start to make some progress, you achieve some of your fitness goals, and you start feeling pretty good about yourself. And then as a result, you begin to ease up on the diet just a little bit. Stop being quite as careful and controlled maybe in what you're eating. And then you get back on the scale and suddenly you're, you're very surprised and devastated to find out that all of that progress you made just has suddenly slipped away. And so you begin the diet cycle all over again. We do something very much like that at times in our spiritual lives. We attend to a particular sin for a while. We starve it. We cut off its oxygen by removing temptations or opportunities to pursue that sin in our lives. 
And as a result of those efforts, we begin to experience some victory over that sin, and then we start feeling pretty good about ourselves as we see that sin diminishing in our lives. And so we begin to ease up on the aggressiveness of starving that temptation or avoiding opportunities for moral compromise. And that's exactly when we are in deep trouble. It would be nice to think that you are safe from sin and folly when maybe you turn 60 or 70 or 80. That's not, by the way, not old. That's mature. That's not old, mature. It would be nice if at some point you outgrew temptation and sin. But there are no awards that are handed out at any race at the quarter mark or at the halfway mark or at the three-quarter pole. They are given to those who finish the race running strong. Faithfulness, endurance, watchfulness, and humble perseverance are required in the Christian life. And so we see for Noah, a man who has been characterized by faithfulness throughout his life, here as we come to the end of his story in the book of Genesis, there is this sad event of moral compromise through a failure to guard his heart. Now, some of you may be thinking that we are maybe being a bit too harsh on Noah. Sure, the guy had a little bit too much to drink and passed out in his tent before he got his PJs on, but really, what's the big deal here? I think in order to understand why what Noah does here is significant, why it is a matter of moral failure and compromise, we need to pause for just a moment and think through a a biblical theology of of alcohol for just a moment. So I want to just pause for a moment and offer two brief biblical reflections on the subject of alcohol for us to understand what Noah is really doing here. So reflection number one, drinking for us is a matter of Christian liberty. We must be careful not to prohibit or to restrict what God does not. So we recall that Jesus in his first miracle turns water into wine. Paul will instruct his protege Timothy to occasionally drink a little wine for the sake of his health. Paul also tells believers that they are to exercise their freedom in Christ in this way, in 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the good gifts of God's good creation are open to believers provided that they are enjoyed in God-honoring, self-controlled ways that also respect the consciences of others. It is therefore a matter of liberty for the Christian to partake or to not partake in drinking of alcohol. But that liberty comes with a very important caveat, which is the second reflection about alcohol that I'd like to make. And that is that drunkenness is a sin. On balance, the Bible warns about the abuse of alcohol far more frequently than it commends its use. And the scriptures make very clear that being drunk is not just a foolish choice, it's a sin. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Or 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit 
the kingdom of God. In fact, drunkenness is mentioned frequently throughout the New Testament epistles among the lists of grievous sins. A man who desires to be an elder or a deacon cannot be a drunkard. Paul says in Titus chapter 2 that mature godly women will not be addicted to wine. Moreover, the Bible makes clear that substance-impaired minds make us susceptible to further sin. As we saw in Proverbs 23 just a moment ago, if you are drunk in these ways, your eyes will see strange things, your heart will utter perverse things, Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So while drinking wine and alcohol is a matter of liberty and conscience, drunkenness is not. One is a matter of liberty, the other is sin. We need to be clear about that. So just to offer a thought of application here, a gentle warning for us then. Many Christians seem to operate under the impression that because drinking alcohol is a matter of liberty, that they are free to enjoy it without giving the matter much thought or consideration for themselves. They act as though I am free to do something means that I should do something. But the many biblical warnings on this subject show us that that is not the case. Our liberty in this, as in any exercise of our liberty, needs to be exercised carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and with mature introspection. Not every Christian should enjoy every Christian liberty. To put it in the context of which we are speaking, the liberty to drink in moderation should not be exercised by every Christian. For those who struggle in their lives with self-control, for those who have a tendency to overindulge, for those who may be prone to become easily addicted to things, opening the door to alcohol for you would not be wise. So let me briefly give you three reasons why exercising your liberty in this area should only be done thoughtfully and prayerfully. Number one, few of us are as self-controlled as we imagine ourselves to be. Noah was as godly as it gets. He was more mature in years than anyone in this room, more life experience than any of us have had, and yet he failed to be sufficiently self-controlled. So honestly be willing to evaluate yourself. Do you have the self-control to ensure that at all times that you would choose to drink, that you will do so with sufficient moderation to ensure that you will never commit the sin of drunkenness? Additionally, alcoholic beverages impair our ability to think, which in turn impairs our ability to appropriately measure our mental state and determine how close to that line we may be coming. So again, care, thoughtfulness, and prayer are needed. Second, we should be sensitive to the weaknesses of those around us. Thoughtless expressions of our Christian liberty can frequently harm those around us who may have a weaker conscience or may, who may be less mature or who have something in their history or in their experience that would make participating with you in your liberty a sin for them. Our liberty should not come at the expense of of loving our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. So we need to thoughtfully consider others as we exercise our liberty. Third, everything that we do should be able to satisfy this very simple test. Can I do this thing to the glory of God? If the answer for you is yes, then enjoy God's good gifts and drink in a self-controlled manner to the glory of God. 
But if that answer for you is no, then in reality, exercising your perceived liberty in that area would be exchanging your freedom in Christ for enslavement to sin. Our mission statement as a church, we are called to glorify God. That is the litmus test for us as believers. Can I do this to the glory of God? So with that kind of background in place, we return again to the narrative of of Genesis 9, and we see that the matter that is transpiring in Noah's life is not just a a minor indiscretion. It is a matter of grievous sin. It won't do for us to pass off Noah's behavior as some kind of harmless, work-hard, play-hard tomfoolery. It's not what we're dealing with here. Drunkenness is a sin. And Noah is not just a little bit unsteady and muddle-headed. He is drunk to the point of lying passed out naked in his tent. And in Genesis, we need to remember that exposed nakedness is a big deal in this narrative. Remember back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The moment that they eat of the forbidden fruit, they immediately come to this devastating self-awareness of their nakedness. And that nakedness creates in them a frantic sense of shame that demands that they sew a crude fig leaf garment to cover and hide their nakedness from each other and from God until God himself steps in and provides a covering for them. God himself identifies that at least their impulse is right. They need a covering. Shame, sin needs a covering. And notice here in our text that before This passage refers to Noah as naked. It first refers to him as being uncovered. His shame, his guilt is exposed. Noah's sinful drunkenness has so diminished his awareness and sense of propriety that it has deprived him of even the awareness of the shame of his nakedness. He's lying exposed for passerbys to see, which is apparently possible because he will be seen in this condition. And so for all of the godliness and maturity of years that we have observed in Noah up to this point, he has here lowered his guard to the extent that he has been overcome by a matter of sin in his life. As one commentator said so well, Noah, who had for so long kept sober in drunken company, is now drunk in sober company. Godliness is not a sprint. Righteous character isn't solidified for life after a good start. The pursuit of godliness is a lifelong endeavor. So before we move on, I'd like to offer one additional thought of application for us to hold on to. A loose defense against sin tends to have compounding effects. First, because failing to guard ourselves against temptation frequently provides further opportunities for our our own sin. Noah's drunkenness ends up leading onto this sin of indecent exposure. One sin paved the path that led to the next. We might think, for example, that lacking a bit of self-control in what we eat is not that big of a deal. But if we aren't guarding our hearts and addressing sin in our lives, then why would we imagine that issues that we might have with self-control will confine themselves to gluttony? Why would we imagine that that same lack of self-control will not eventually manifest itself in how we use our words or in how we handle our emotions or our anger or in how we handle our money or in how we handle our sexual desires? Unaddressed issues of sin have compounding effects 
But by the way, that's not only in our own lives, because we also see in this text that failing to guard ourselves against sin frequently provides opportunities for the sins of others. We're going to see in just a moment that Noah is not the only man in this passage who commits sin. But it is Noah's sin that provides the opportunity for his son's sin. The sinful things that you and I do frequently provide gold-plated opportunities for others to respond in sinful ways, to trip over stumbling blocks that we have laid directly in their paths. A loose defense against sin tends to have compounding effects. Back to our text, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. That brings us to a second truth from our text this morning. When confronted by the sin of others, we always have a choice in how we will respond. We always have a choice. The sons of Noah here have equal opportunity about how they will respond to their father and his sin. But we see here that they make two very different choices. When we are presented with the sin of someone else or perhaps someone has sinned against us, we also always have two different choices open to us. Like Ham, we can respond to the sin of someone else in a sinful way. Now to understand Ham's sin here, we first need to actually understand what exactly it is that Ham does. And believe it or not, that is not as easy as it might at first seem. And the reason why it's not so straightforward is that the phrase, saw the nakedness of, there in verse 22, is a phrase that is frequently employed as a euphemism in the Old Testament for sinful sexual acts. So this is actually a very challenging passage to untangle and interpret. In fact, there are numerous ways that this passage has been interpreted, but I'm going to give you the three that I think are the most plausible. And we're going to work from what I think is the least likely option to what I believe to be the most straightforward option that best fits the context of this text. And to be clear, most of these options are very sorted. It is a perverse set of options that lie in front of us. And yet as we work through these admittedly perverse options, we're going to do so in a biblically appropriate way, in a way that is appropriate in our languages as we work through these, recognizing the grotesque options that, that lie in front of us. So here's option number one. Ham commits a sexual offense against his own father. This view, I think, is the least likely for a number of reasons. First, the, the main reason that we would even consider this as a possibility is because the phrase, saw the nakedness of, can be used as a euphemism for sexual acts. But that phrase is nowhere else used as a euphemism for homosexual activity, only for heterosexual acts. And so therefore, if we would only ever think that this is an option because this could be used as a euphemism, but it is never used as a euphemism in this way, that removes the linguistic connection that opens this as a possibility in the first place. In fact, the Old Testament has a whole other set of terms that it uses for same-sex acts. The, the other thing that I think makes this particular perspective challenging is it's hard to reconcile this interpretation with Ham's subsequent act of going and telling his brothers it's not inconceivable, but I think it's somewhat hard and strange to believe that such a perverse act would then be accompanied 
by boasting to your own brothers about the horrible thing that you had just done to your father. That's challenging to conceive of. So I think that this is not the most persuasive interpretation of this text. Option number two then. Ham commits an indecent sexual offense against his mother. Leviticus 18 contains a series of prohibitions against incestuous relationships. We read this in Leviticus 18, verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So the language of uncovering the nakedness of your father in the book of Leviticus, I remind you, also written by Moses, serves as a euphemism for an act of incest against the mother. So is that what is happening here? I'll admit to you, this is a plausible explanation. In fact, there are elements of the literary context that would lend further support to this interpretation. It would, for example, helpfully explain why Ham's son Canaan keeps getting name-dropped in this passage and why the curse is directed on Canaan rather than Ham. If Canaan is the progeny of this sexual act, it would make sense then why the curse is directed to him rather than against him, or at least it would make a little bit more sense. Further, it would explain to some degree the severity of Noah's response once he comes to his senses. He is very angry when he wakes up. So it would help us explain the severity of the crime, would explain the severity of the curse. And yet, I think on the whole that this is not the best explanation. It again doesn't explain why Ham would go tell his brothers. I think, in fact, this explanation makes that harder to understand. Moreover, and most importantly, it doesn't explain why Shem and Japheth take a garment and cover Noah. That is inexplicable in the text if this is what Ham does. If the problem isn't actually that Noah is lying there naked, if if that's just a euphemism, then how do Shem and Japheth's actions make any sense? How are they remedying the situation when that isn't the situation? So for their actions to be comprehensible in the text, it doesn't seem as though this can be the appropriate answer. So that brings us to option three, the, the view that I would take in interpreting this text. I believe that Ham sees his father in a disgraced position, drunk and naked, and takes advantage of the opportunity to mock his father in front of his brothers instead of showing honor to his father. This option relies on the most simple and straightforward reading of the text, and in this particular case, I believe that is what the literary context best supports. It is true that the phrase, saw the nakedness of his father, can be used as a euphemism, but we shouldn't just brush over the fact that that is also the way that you would simply say he saw his father naked if that was actually what had happened. This is also the literal way of just expressing these literal events if that's what happened. So we don't need to assume that this text is speaking in a euphemistic fashion. But if that is the case, then why is what Ham does such a big deal? Because it's not like Ham is going to be the first or last guy in the history of the world who has seen his dad without his clothes on. So what's really the big issue here? We have to remember first, as we mentioned earlier, that in the book of Genesis, particularly to this point, the theme of nakedness is carrying greater theological weight than what we might just naturally attach to it. Nakedness in Genesis is first connected in chapter 2 with mankind's innocent openness. They were naked and without shame. But that changes in Genesis chapter 3. Subsequent to the fall, their nakedness is now a symbol of guilt and shame, and that demands a covering. Shame, sin needs a covering. 
And so for him, there is a sin of omission and a sin of commission here. Omission because he fails to do what he ought to have done. And what he ought to have done is that he should have remedied his father's shame by doing what his brothers did and providing a covering for his dad. But there's also a sin of commission here because instead of doing that, he goes out and the text says he tells his brothers. And the fact that that detail is included suggests that it's not just he provides facts to his brothers about what he's just seen. The implication is he is mocking his father in front of his brothers. And so this is both an honor and a shame thing. Ham neglects honoring his father by not covering him, and then he goes beyond that to heap shame on his father in front of his brothers. Now, we live in a culture today where children routinely dishonor and shame their parents, and no one hardly thinks anything about it. So we look at this and we're like, well, what's the big deal? But again, that's our minds that need to be renewed, not a problem in the text. Because dishonoring parents is a big deal to God. There, when we think of the Ten Commandments, that's a pretty short list when you think of the moral requirements. Honoring father and mother makes it into that list of ten, and it's the only one that contains a promise, a covenant promise connected to it. Moreover, children dishonoring their parents is one of the marks of the end times in the New Testament. You want to know how bad things are getting? One of the measuring sticks is going to be a culture that dis, where children feel free to dishonor parents. That will be a mark of cultural decadence toward the end. To dishonor parents is to dishonor God who created the family unit and who sovereignly unites parents and children together. And that disrespect threatens to destabilize the family that is formed as the centerpiece of an ordered society. So dishonoring parents is a big deal. And that's the path that Ham takes. He responds to his father's sin by adding sin of his own. But the other path that we can take is that we can be like Shem and Japheth and respond to the sin of others righteously. Their actions here speak very loudly. They speak volumes about their character. They do not participate with their brother in mocking their father. They don't take advantage of Noah's humiliation for an opportunity to have a good time. In fact, not only do they provide a covering for their father, but notice that they walk backward in order to do it. And when the time comes to actually lay the garment on their father, they turn their faces away so that at no point do they actually see the shameful condition in which their father is in. They have an excessive concern to be righteous and upright that is expressed in an unwillingness to even see their father in this condition. Their concern for their father's honor is greater than Noah's concern for his own honor. That is the character of these two sons. These are profoundly godly men who are standing on the uprightness of recognizing their responsibility to uphold the honor of their father even when he is not doing so for himself. So they take excessive measures to ensure that is the case and to never see their father's shame. I'd like to make a couple of brief applications here before we move on. Number one, responding to the sin of others sinfully ourselves is still sin. Other people's sin, including, by the way, sin that is directed against you where you are the victim of someone else's sin, other people's sin is no kind of license or freedom 
to sin in response. Yet how many times in our relationships is that exactly what we end up doing? Someone is thoughtless in their words toward us. So we think that justifies our anger toward them. Someone is rude to us, so we think that excuses our snippiness right back at them. Someone wounds or hurts us deeply, and so we think that that warrants years of bitterness and anger that we cherish in our hearts toward them. Or maybe we're in social situations where others are doing things that maybe sit a little bit uneasily in our conscience, but hey, they're doing it, so it can't be all that bad, and we just jump right in. Regardless of the situation, whether someone is sinning against you or you just have an opportunity to join in someone else's sin, no matter what, someone else's sin does not ever justify our sin in response. Why? Because we always have a choice. There is always a means of responding righteously to the sin of someone else. Their sin does not necessitate your sin in response, and their sin will certainly not excuse your sin. There will be no opportunity before the Lord to say, I did this because they did that. Second, we should build a character that is ready for when it counts. Think about how easy it would have been for Shem and Japheth to join in with Ham in mocking their father. That would have been the easiest thing in the world. That was the path of least resistance that was open to them. If their character was not as firmly established well in advance of that situation, then very likely they end up taking the same path that Ham does. But their response reveals a well-formed character, the kind of character that not only refrained from doing wrong, but that actively pursued the right. When you examine the kinds of choices that you regularly make in life, what areas of your integrity stand to be improved upon? You know, godly character is not just going to spontaneously appear when opportunities for sin emerge. Character that isn't there before isn't suddenly just going to develop when the fire gets hot. That's not how it works. Godly character is carefully and quietly cultivated over a lifetime so that it will be tried and true when it counts the most. How does that old hymn go? Take time to be holy while the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct his likeness shall see. You want to build a character that is ready when it counts? Then take time to be holy. Be prepared ahead of time so that you are ready when it matters. The third major thought from our text this morning, the moral choices that we make frequently end up having lasting consequences. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And the, and Noah, and the, uh, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. The aftermath of Ham's sin will echo down through the generations. When Noah wakes up and he discovers what has happened, he responds by uttering here a series of blessings and curses. I think it's sad to realize that this is, in fact, the only time that we ever hear Noah speak in the book of Genesis. 
After all those years of faithful obedience, Noah is silent. It's only in the aftermath of the ugliness of his sin and this ugly scene in front of us that we actually hear Noah speak. The blessings that Noah utters are, of course, reserved for Shem and Japheth. But when it comes to the curse, the person who, in fact, gets cursed is not the person that we might expect. It's not a curse on Ham, but a curse on Ham's son, Canaan. Ham is Noah's youngest son. Canaan is Ham's youngest son. The text does not give us an immediate reason why it is Canaan who bears the brunt of this curse, but I think in the rest of what follows, not only immediately, but in the rest of the whole biblical narrative, I think the picture becomes a little bit clearer. Because it seems that this curse is a kind of prophetic pronouncement that anticipates the future of Ham's family tree is going to be most realized through the Canaanites, who are going to be the long-term enemies of Israel. We aren't going to read verse by verse through chapter 10, which is another genealogy, but we're going to make a few observations from that genealogy that runs through chapter 10. This genealogy is referred to as the table of nations because all of the families of the earth will come from these three sons of Noah. It's going to become apparent as we work our way through the rest of Genesis that the promised line, the line from Genesis 3.15, who will bring us to the hero that we are looking for, who will crush the head of the serpent, that promised line is going to come through the family of Shem. But when it comes to Ham, it also becomes clear that this line of nations that flow from him are going to be the enemies of the promise. They're going to be the long-term enemies of Israel. They're going to be more like the seed of the serpent at enmity with the seed of the woman. One of Ham's sons, Cush, is going to have a son named Nimrod. Nimrod will be instrumental in the founding of a city that we're going to look at next week, the city of Babel, which will eventually become connected to Assyria and to the Babylonian Empire, which will have animosity in the long run with the Israelites. And then when it comes to Ham's son Canaan, the cursed son, we see that the people who come from him are the eventual Canaanite tribes. These are the people who will be living in the land of Canaan, the land of promise, who worship false gods, who commit atrocities in the land, and who the Israelites will need to conquer in order to possess the land, and then will have long-term battles back and forth with the Israelites in the land. Now, think forward with me for just a moment to the Ten Commandments, because there is a promise given to the Israelites if they will keep the command to honor their father and mother. And that promise is that they will get to dwell long in the land that the Lord God is giving to them. A promise that is connected to keeping the land. Well, what is that land? It's the land of Canaan. Which means that before Israel goes in to possess that land, they're going to have to kick out the current inhabitants of the land who aren't able to keep it. And who are those inhabitants? They are the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham, the man who dishonored his father. And when the Israelites in their turn dishonor their parents and abandon the gods of their forefathers and pursue idolatry, they will in turn be removed from the land and God will use the Assyrian and Babylonian empires who were founded by Nimrod, the grandson of Ham. So God is going to bring this whole thing full circle because honoring parents matters to God. This genealogy is a grim reminder that the effects of our sin frequently have long-lasting consequences that go far beyond us. Noah's sin impacts his son, and then his grandson, and then his whole family tree. 
Now, God can and does redeem broken family histories. And there are many of us in this room who have reason to be thankful for God's intervening grace in specifically those ways. The sin of someone else in our family in no way determines our trajectory. Just as we see with Shem and Japheth, they are able to righteously respond to their father's sin. And so they enter into the promises of the promised line that God offers. But at the same time, we should count the cost of our sinful choices knowing that we are seldom the only ones who will bear the consequences for the sinful decisions that we make. As we close this morning, I want to just offer one final thought of application from our text. Noah is an important reminder to us that our best moral efforts will never be enough to satisfy the requirements of perfect obedience. Noah was the most righteous man on the face of the earth for most of his life. Among all of humanity, this guy was the most godly, blameless in his generation. A man of remarkable faith and incredible obedience. None of us have the spiritual credentials that Noah had. And yet in the last recorded act of his life, we find this scene of folly and sin. We remarked last week that Noah was being set up as a type of a new Adam. Emerging from the flood as the deliverer for Humanity and the father of the rest of the human race. Given the charge of being fruitful and multiplying. Blessed by God. Given dominion over the creation. And so we might be tempted to optimistically hope, like Noah's father Lamech did, that Noah would be the hero that we need. Someone who would finally bring rest to the earth from the curse upon the ground from Genesis chapter 3. That's what Lamech hoped and prayed for over his son. Maybe this will be the deliverer we, we need. But then Genesis 9 happens, and notice that the parallels with Adam continue, because we find Noah in a garden of sorts, a vineyard, and we find that he has morally fallen as a result of partaking of the fruit. And as a result of his fall, there is shameful nakedness and a covering that needs to be provided. And as a result of all that transpires, a curse is rendered, a curse that will have generational consequences. This is Genesis chapter 3 all over again. The new Adam, the new humanity is just like the first Adam was. And this begins to build a case that the Old Testament authors will prosecute again and again and again about every Old Testament hero. He's not enough. He's not enough. He's not enough. A good man, a great man of faith, in fact, but not the hero that we really need. And if his moral efforts were not enough to ensure a life of total obedience to the end of his life, then friends, our best moral efforts in ourselves will always fall short. We need a better hero. We need a better Adam. And praise God, that is exactly what we have been given in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder that even for a man like Noah, a man who is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the great heroes of the faith, a man remarkable for his obedience and righteous character, and yet we see in him like we see in ourselves an inability to live in perfect obedience and perfect righteousness, that Noah needed a Savior just as we need a Savior. And so we thank you for these testimonies that we read in your word that identify that there is 
No name under heaven given whereby men can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us a new and better Adam who came to save the hellbound man. Father, may we learn from Noah's example and commit our lives to the pursuit of godliness, recognizing that it is not a sprint, it is a lifelong endeavor. So, Father, help us as we handle our hearts that you would keep us from stumbling, and that when we have opportunities to respond to the sin of others, through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would respond righteously. For the sake of your glorious name, amen.